2 Samuel chapter 1. Today will be our last Sunday in this chapter. Our text is primarily verses 17 through 27. However, I'll be reading the entire chapter as we begin. Here once again the very word of God from 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had reigned from the, returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man, man, Who told him? How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked uh, looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me. For anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. 
They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever and ever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we review this poem or song that David has penned as he laments for the death of Saul and Jonathan, we pray that we would understand in, in the times of our lamentations, when grief has struck upon us, when it has overtaken us in many respects, that we not forget your mighty hand, that you are sovereign over all things, that you raise up men and women and you put them down. And as Job, at the loss of his children, proclaimed, Still, blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we understand that we live in a fallen world where sin still takes many casualties. Father, we pray and give thanks that Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, died on the cross and rose the third day, that sin would not have victory over us that death would not have a sting like it has had for centuries over the fallen, but rather, Lord, that we might live eternally in him. May that precious good news sustain us in time of lamentation. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, last week's sermon, we, we looked at verses... 1 through 16 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, where we learned that Saul and Jonathan's, uh, where we learned of Saul and Jonathan's, Jonathan's death and the passing of the kingly authority in Israel to David. We saw his first kingly act where he puts a, an Amalekite to death for having raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. We reviewed the curse upon the Amalekites given to Saul by God and Saul's failures to fulfill the commandment of God to expunge the Amalekites from the earth. That failure led to an Amalekite delivering the mortal wound to Saul and propelling David to the throne to which he had been anointed. Today I would like to, uh, us to focus our attention at the end of chapter 1. And David's desire to teach the children the song of the bow that was contained in the ancient historical book of the Israelites called the book of Jasher. Historically, we see the convergence of two kings and their distinct desires in following God. Saul was not a man after God's own heart, but was a man who was, as we saw last week, mistaken in his belief that partial obedience to God was actual obedience. That partial obedience was actual obedience. 
In contrast to that, we also see David, who not only was a man after God's own heart, but was careful to be faithful to God, even where Saul was not careful. And that resulted in his first kingly act. Certainly, later in his life, David would have failures. Yet, when David failed and sinned against God, he owned his own sin. Let me say that again. He owned his own sin. He confessed it and sought God's mercy for himself and forgiveness. He sought that for his family as well as all Israel. In the case of Saul, we have no no such accounting. Saul was all about Saul. David, on the other hand, was a man after God's own heart. One modern commentator made these observations regarding this convergence of these two kings when Saul dies and David begins his, his reign over Israel. I quote this commentator, Saul lost his kingship because he plundered the Amalekites, and here an Amalekite plunders him and loses his life for it. David has just finished wiping out the Amalekites, and then here comes another one. When David asks what happened, he uses the same phrase that Eli spoke to his messenger from the battlefield. This is the next iteration of Hannah's great vision of the collapse of the corrupt elites and their replacement by faithful outsiders. Only this time the words are spoken by the one who will replace, not the one who will be replaced. So in some senses, this is prophetic with regard to Hannah's thoughts and her vision early in 1 Samuel. In our text today, in verses 17 through 27, we see evidence of David's distinctly godly character. In grief and lamentation, David thinks of the historical events of Israel's past. He thinks of God's covenantal promises to Israel found in the primary history book of Israel, the book of Jasher. There in chapter 89 of this book is recorded a song of triumph when Joshua defeated 17 kings and their armies from the land of the Amorites and Canaanites. These victories were a result of God fighting for Israel as Joshua endeavored to faithfully do all of God's will. Now, the book of Asher is only mentioned twice in the Bible. But let me speak briefly about this book. It might be helpful because this is part of the context in which David is lamenting over the death of Saul and Jonathan. As I mentioned, it's only spoken of twice in the Scriptures, in Joshua 10.13 and here in 2 Samuel 1.18. This book was an accounting of the history of Israel from Adam to the conquests and through the conquests of Joshua following the Exodus. The name Jasher is likely a a reference to the just ones. So its title could be rendered the Book of the Just. A copy of this book has survived from antiquity, and many scholars believe it is likely an accurate facsimile of the original. It is 91 chapters in length and covers some 405 modern 
PDF pages, 405 pages, 91 chapters. A little light reading for your Sunday afternoon, right? There is only one song recorded in this book, and it is contained in chapter 89 at the end of the book. Interestingly, that song does not contain the word bow, B-O-W. So there are those who believe that it may not be the song referred to by David in this passage. Remember, he calls those of Judah to, to have the children sing the song of the bow. It is, however, a song of conquest, of God's faithful aid to his covenant people in taking the promised land at his command. What is notable for our purposes today is David's application to probably the most memorable part of this book for the people of Israel. Because a song is recorded in the book of Jasher, it is likely that, that it is the song of the bow, and it is the most memorable portion of that history book. Music is important in our lives, is it not? We play it all the time in our car when we're driving, in our homes as we're doing our work around the house. Uh, it, it, it is a common occurrence to see headphones on a head when you walk the streets of Cincinnati. It's almost unusual not to see those headphones when you're on a college campus on the heads of the students. Now, I, I assume they're all listening to the lectures that they've been given, right? I doubt it. It's music that they're listening to. Our, our visual presentations of media are almost always accompanied by music, are they not? Even if it's a, 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 a news report, it begins with music. You have this blaring music to grab your attention to this visual image that's about to, to give you this very important, <clears throat> very important information. Well, music is all around us. And it's important because music is important to God. We bear God's image, and from the earliest moments of creation, God made music. The seas roar, the creatures sing, and man manipul manipulates sound to create beautiful music. This is because God has structured sound for dominion and for his own glory. Just as the cherubim and the seraphim sing in the heavens, we too are to add our voices to those heavenly voices in praise of our God. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to offer a sacrifice of praise. Now it is likely that this song in the book of Jasher was similar to our national anthem. And lest the Israelites lose heart that their king and his son have been slain, they are to remember that God gives them the victory. It is he who is faithful to the covenant promises made to, his father, to the, the fathers of Israel in days past. And David's heart is filled with grief. Yet, the king of it, because the king of Israel has fallen, along with his most faithful son, Jonathan. But here David's song or poem, as he laments the possible outcomes of this tragedy. 
The beauty of Israel's slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. David's lamentation says, let not the enemies of God rejoice over the slain king and his prince, Jonathan. Let that not be the case. Now he's thinking about this book of Jasher, which is the the culmination of the historical accounts of the great victories of Israel. He says, don't let this happen in Gath and Ashkelon. Gath and Ashkelon are two of the four mighty cities of the Philistines. What will become of the inhabitants of these cities when they learn of the demise of Saul and Jonathan? It's contained right here in these verses. The daughters of Philistia will rejoice and likely their children will ask, why are we rejoicing? In other words, this calamity for Israel will embolden the enemies of Israel and the offspring of the daughters of Philistia and they will fight with greater courage and not fear Israel as they ought because of Saul and Jonathan's death. David understands the psychological benefits to the people of Philistia. Yet, David will not fear, as we shall see in the coming weeks. Now in verses 21 through 27, David truly laments for Saul and Jonathan. And there's a great irony here. These two men, Saul and Jonathan, are very different. Saul the king of Israel, has sought to kill Jonathan, or excuse me, has sought to kill David. By the way, at one point he even seeks to kill Jonathan because Jonathan comes to David's aid. But over the last decade, Saul has sought to kill David. At the same time, Jonathan has loved David more than a brother. He has actually put his life in jeopardy to protect David and to keep him alive. David's lamentations for Jonathan are understandable, are they not? Here's a young man, well actually he was older than David by probably 15 years. Probably 15 years his senior. It's it's not, uh, it's within the realm of, of plausibility that he would lament this good friend of his dying at the hands of the enemy. What is remarkable is that David laments over Saul, the man who's been trying to kill him, the king of Israel. David is exhibiting an attitude towards Saul that David's son Solomon would record in the book of Proverbs, chapter 24, verses 16 through 18. And there we read these verses. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn his wrath, turn away his wrath from him. God does not want us to rejoice in the fall of our enemies. Rather, 
God would have us be like David. It's hard sometimes to see people who have embraced wickedness spiral downward out of control. And despite David's best efforts to, to sing psalms to Saul, to raise his spirits, to encourage him in his kingship in Israel, Saul, Saul focused on his envy toward David. He sought to kill David out of envy. And though he initially showed love and kindness to David, in his latter days there was only animosity and hatred toward David. Though bitterness had overtaken him, and he had that root of bitterness in his soul, Saul did, that root of bitterness described in Hebrews 12.15, by way of contrast, David refuses to follow in Saul's footsteps, though he had every reason to. He had every reason to be envious of Saul because for now a decade he had been anointed the king of Israel by Samuel and had yet to sit on the throne. Who had cause for envy? Was it Saul or was it David? Yet David shows a steadfast love towards Saul even in Saul's horrible death. Even in that death, he does not glory over the fallen enemy, Saul. What does David do? He eulogizes both Saul and Jonathan, but his greatest praise rightly falls to the memory of Jonathan. Hear these words beginning in verse 25. How the mighty have fallen, these are the words of David, in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman. Jonathan's love for David, shown in many to- in the many times where he had put his own life in peril to aid David, is now reciprocated by David in his poem of lamentation for Jonathan. In humanly terms, there is no greater love than the sacrificial love of a woman toward her husband. That was the kind of love Jonathan exhibited toward David, but, as the scriptures tell us, in surpassing measure. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman. But this doesn't mean that David despised Saul. On the contrary, he speaks of Saul with high praise. That man who tried to take his life often was still praised by David. And how can that be? How can he do such a thing? Well, the evidence is in his first kingly act. When he took the life of the Amalekite, He did it because the Amalekite raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. That has meaning. When God anoints something, it means his power and his blessing are upon it. And Saul was the anointed of God for Israel. But Saul squandered that anointment. 
He squandered it and it cost him his life. Let me bring this to an application. A couple different applications. Uh, I shared with my wife on the way to church this morning that I could preach from this passage many times. She said, well, don't try to fit all those sermons into one today. So I'm not going to do that. But I do want to bring some applications to bear. I want us to focus a little bit on verses 21 and 22. There we read, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon your, on you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. There was a bloody field where this battle took place. It was on the mountains of Gilboa. Those mountains are witnesses to this battle. Sometimes the scriptures give human attributes to uh, non-sentient things like trees and mountains and rivers in the scriptures. But here... David is saying, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain on you. Let no, no thing come to you that will sustain life in you because of this great loss. David is again rehearsing the lamentations of his heart in his mind and it comes out his pen in this poem. Do our songs do that? Do we have psalms or poems of lamentation at times of great trouble? And if we do, do they end with the great turmoil that we're in? Or does it end with the hope of God's promised salvation to man? Do we wallow in our lamentation or in our sin? Sometimes we're lamenting the very sins that we've committed. We're going to see David lament sins that he committed and the consequences of those sins in his life. But do we stop there? Do we stay in that lamentation? Do we stay in the grief in hopes of what? I don't know. Or do we look outside that? Do we see the sunrise the next day? Do we see God's blessing upon us in the midst of that difficulty? Do we hope in the Lord? Or do we embrace our grief all the more? Brethren, God has redeemed His people that we should no longer have fear. That is the promise that Paul reiterates in the Roman Gospel, or in the Roman Epistle. That we are are not children of fear, but we are children of hope. The hope that God gives to His people and His promises. In this portion that I've just read, verses 21 through 22, 
David makes a very keen observation about the shield of the mighty. Saul's shield was not anointed, verse 21. This seems a bit unusual because of David's insistence that the Amalekite be executed because he raised his hand against God's anointed. Well, it's true, Saul was anointed, but his shield was not. And here's an important contrast that we Calvinists need to keep in mind. We believe in God's sovereignty, his election and salvation, his predestining of all that comes to pass. But we must not lose sight of the fact that God also blesses and curses obedience and disobedience. Now let me give you an idea of what this reference to the anointing of the shield of Saul might be. When ancient armies went to battle, there is, a, there is historical evidence that men spread oil on their shields in hopes of making arrows, spears, and swords more likely to glance off. They would put oil on the face of the shield in hopes that the, the glancing blow would go off more quickly, or that a, a, a blow that is struck closely might actually glance off because of the oil. When Saul goes to war with the Philistines and dies, David says that his shield was not anointed. I don't believe he's referencing oil being applied to the shield on the face of it, but I do believe the analogy is intentional. God, though having anointed Saul as king over Israel, had not anointed Saul's shield to protect him. God's patience with Saul had come to an end. Just as David writes in Psalm 103, verses 8 and 9. Interestingly, both the Philistines and the Amalekites brought about Saul's death, but David had been victorious over both. Where Saul had failed and the mighty men had fallen, he and his prince, Jonathan, the stronger man, David, prevailed. Last week's sermon I ended in Luke chapter 11. Do you remember that? Where Jesus talks about the strong man and the stronger man, that the stronger man binds the strong man and pillages his house and takes all his goods. Jesus being the stronger man. Well, here, brethren, David is the stronger man. Think back with me to when David went to the Valley of Elah to fight the Philistine giant from Gath named Goliath. Notice that the, 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 the women of Gath are not to rejoice over Saul's death here. There's a sense in which they need to remember their giant died at the hands of David David's still alive. David's still alive. And in the Valley of Elah, back in 1 Samuel, David confronts the giant of Gath, the Philistines, and he kills him. But something happened in the midst of that that's important that relates to this shield of Saul. Do you remember... Saul wanted David to take his armaments to the fight. Remember he wanted to clothe him in his armor? Well, we think of armor as the suit of, of, of uh, steel or metal that a man wears into battle. 
Well, the word armament means not just that, but the offensive parts of of the battle as well as any defensive things that you take into battle. So armaments include your sword, your spear, uh, maybe a, a dagger at your belt. It would include the shield that you take as well as your helmet and any of the body armor that you, you have on you. Everything's included. And Saul offers this to David to go into battle against the Philistine giant, the giant from Gath. David refused. Now, too many times in the Sunday school books, it's because it was too big for David, right? It said that his armaments were too big. That's not the reason given in Scripture. The reason that's given in Scripture is his armaments were untested. Untested. Saul was a giant in Israel. Goliath was the giant in Philistia. God had set this circumstance up that a giant would go against a giant, the giant of God against the giant of the Philistines, and who would, who would come out victor? The giant of God. But Saul had no intention of going down into that valley and meeting up with the Philistine giant. Instead, a young man, probably not a boy in the sense that we would consider a boy. He's already taken down a bear and a lion with a sling. This is no young, untested boy. He's a young man who has been tested. And he's going to war against a giant with a tested weapon, not the untested armaments of Saul. When Saul relied on his armaments in the battle against the Philistines, at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel, his untested armaments fail the test. Is it because they were weak, poorly constructed, maybe not tempered as they should have been? I think not. It's because God did not make them effectual. God withdrew his blessing. That's what David's speaking about with regard to this unanointed shield. The blessing was not on the armaments of Saul, but rather on the armaments of David, his trust in the Lord. A tested sling of all things and a handful of smooth stones. They toppled the Philistine giant. A young man who had no shield in battle, a young man who had no sword, he had to take Goliath's sword to decapitate his dead body. He had no sword when he went into battle. But he had a tested weapon that was effectual for the bringing down of a giant. And this brings me to our application. What effectual weapon do we have to do the kingdom work of our Savior 
that will bring down giants. Is it a sling? A spear? The Scripture says it's the living Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder to the dividing of the soul and spirit. That's the weapon God's entrusted to us. And we are to put our hope in the Lord and the power of His might. These were the things that David was looking back to in the book of Jasher. The historical accounts were men and women who'd come out of Egypt with no weaponry whatsoever. They had things like pots and torches and drums and trumpets. And they march around a city called Jericho and it falls to the ground. Brethren, we have torches and potsherds and trumpets and songs and all of which are related to the Word of God. And we're supposed to march around here singing His praises and watch Him tumble our enemies. And we're to do it with a song on our lips and joy in our hearts. And even when the mighty have fallen, we'll not lose heart because the mightiest of all reigns forever at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, in whom we put our trust. He will subdue the enemies. Remember, the Father promised to Jesus, sit here at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let us pray together.